15 of the copies of your scriptures in the seats. Genesis 17, this is the word of God which does not err and has no mistakes. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall, be, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off. From his people, he has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abram took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money every male among the men of Abram's house, and he circumcised the flesh of the foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. 
Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in his house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Amen. And we know that God blesses his truth. I've called this sermon, The Sign, Seal, Son and Scope of the Covenant of Grace. The Sign, Seal, Son and Scope of the Covenant of Grace. There's four S's that I want us to think about today. Generally speaking, Christians in the West, I think, are only beginning to emerge from the confusion in how to read the Old Testament scriptures. I think this is largely, as I've said, I think in a previous occasion, being caused by liberalism and fundamentalism of the wrong sort that has badly mishandled scripture or doubted scripture and conservatives, I think, I can't comment with knowledge here in the States, but certainly back home, uh, what happened, whether deliberately or subconsciously, was that pastors took a step back from the Old Testament because they doubted, did the people in the pews actually believe what was written in the scriptures? There was so much doubt and uh, writings and periodicals and that kind of thing, questioning the authenticity and the reliability of scripture so there was a distancing and the field was left to those who in my judgment at least weren't properly equipped with knowledge and understanding and languages to handle the scriptures properly or at least the doctrinal basis and confessional understanding and there was a great wave of zeal and enthusiasm and false revivalism mixed in with the true which greatly damaged the church and we're living actually in the west I believe with the consequences of that so it is a quite tragic thing I think to hear misguided voices screeching at a high level of decibels that Christianity is a different religion from the Jews when it's not uh, we are true Jews who worship by the spirit of Christ and have been circumcised by Christ Judaism is not what it means to be grafted into Christ the true Israel and thine which is the faith of Abraham in whose footsteps we follow now there are differences I don't want to downplay or nullify the differences between the old and the new yet we have to say that this from really Genesis 4 onwards from the garden gate onwards we're talking about one continuous work of redemptive grace however we understand all the details and many professing Christians I believe are crypto Marcionites who when what I mean by that is when they encounter passages of scripture which don't fit with their truncated New Testament 
gospel, uh, simply chop that bit out or uh, twist it or turn it to suit their only New Testament Christianity theology. We must grasp that we rely as the wild olive shoot New Testament Gentiles on the vine, on the parent stock of Israel. That's the proper order in scripture to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And we've seen so far that one man was chosen to bring grace to the rest of the race by leaving his homeland Ur in the Chaldees, giving up idolatry and sin through trust in the promise of a land and seed to bring salvation to the world in covenant with God that he would be his God and Abram would be the child of God. The future progress was unpacked a little and the covenant cut in chapter 15, which we saw before the flesh break of chapter 16. And now with flesh uh, uh, renounced, probably a little wiser and chastened, and behind his back, uh, Abram is called to produce fruit of righteousness as a consequence and outworking of his justification by grace through faith in the promised seed Christ who would come. So let's see uh, f- four things in this. Uh, it's, it's, it's a deeply doctrinal passage so we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning but, but I think it hangs together as a passage so I don't want to Uh, delay us too long in our studies. First of all, we see the seal. The seal. Uh, uh, The covenant of circumcision which God gave to the patriarch is not a ritual of works. It's not that. And it's not a, a, a fleshy kind of Covenant. It's not a, a different covenant from chapter 15 or what is mooted in, in chapter 12. It's the same purpose being worked out, the same arrangement that God has come to with the patriarch. Even as Moses in the later law passages brings out, like Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 30, which we read. Uh, makes it clear circumcision was always intended as an outward seal in the flesh but not of the flesh of the spirit's inward work in the life when Abram was 99 years old the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him I am God almighty walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So God's calling for covenant response and in response to grace God commands him to be circumcised. Behold my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. There's a name change 
here, which in Scripture is always linked to redemption and salvation. Something new is being done. He's been given a new name, so he must sing a new song. A saved song. No longer shall your name be called Abram, which means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, uh, which is a combination of the words for father, multitude, and, and crowd. Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. And then the promises are repeated, you see. It's, it's not about works, it's about the promises. Yes, they're expanded. Yes, they're magnified. Yes, they're unpacked and unfolded and enlarged. Maybe a times ten view now of all that God is promising by his free grace. But really, they're basically, they boil down to the same promises of land and blessing through the seed. I will make you, verse 6, exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. What do we make of the word everlasting? Well, there's two ways we should handle this, I think. One is to say that the the, uh, word actually means a long time. It doesn't always mean eternal. That's simply true. So the idea would be this is an enduring covenant, not necessarily the way we think of it, eternally everlasting without end, as as God is without beginning and without end. It doesn't have to mean eternal. It, It often does in Scripture, but it doesn't have to. So that's one way of understanding this promise. It's been given to the patriarchs in perpetuity. It's a permanent thing. It's, it's for good. Or we can see the type bound up with the anti-type, the promise with the fulfillment as one thought and promise and idea. There's going to be this earthly land which foreshadows and is a, a model replica of the final eternal heavenly Canaan. That's two ways I think we can helpfully understand that and avoid the excesses of thinking today that Palestine has eternally been promised as a possession of the people of God. It's, it's heaven's being given to us now through the fulfillment of the promise in Jesus Christ. Whatever we think of Palestine and the land rights whether for the Arabs or the Jews, and have a great sympathy with the Jewish people. I think that's part and parcel in, instinctively, I think, of our Christian heritage rooted in Judaism. So it's s- simply wrong here, as some has have taught to see this as a kind of double Covenant. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the writings of Paul uh, Williamson, who is actually a Belfast chap, 
and a, a good guy, a conservative evangelical Christian. Uh, he recently has worked in recent years, I'm not sure where he is right now, I haven't checked up on that, but uh, he, he, he was lecturing and teaching, first of all in the Irish Baptist College and then he moved to Moore College in, in Sydney and he wrote a book essentially trying to claim that this was a kind of good works covenant which I think probably is used to back up his own theology, which wouldn't be consistently reformed at this point. But there's no good works covenant here. This is all part of the outworking of the purposes of God's grace, so we don't have to fall into that trap here. Revelation unfolds slowly, step by step, why does God separate his purpose of grace in chapter 12, 15 and 17 into three parts? Well, I think we can suggest a couple of reasons. It's so that Abram's faith and life is growing and developing. God doesn't give him the whole thing all at once. That's just true with human experience. So his faith is growing, his understanding is deepening. As my faith and your faith is called to deepen and to grow and not stay static, but grow in knowledge and the grace of Christ. There's to be development in discipleship. We're not to remain static or stationary or frozen in past faith but looking to God move forth. So that's one reason there's progression in his faith. Uh, also progression of a redemptive revelation, of course, the unfolding plan of God in history. Uh, but I think the chief reason is this, that if the sign had been given and attached to chapter 15 in Genesis, it would have been far too easy to mix up the ritual in the flesh with his justification through faith. Remember, the Lord brought him outside and showed him the stars in the sky and said, count them, is it? You can't count. Uh, so shall your offspring be, and the patriarch believed God, and he was justified. He was given a right standing through his faith in God's word. <coughs> and if he had been circumcised at once, he might have been tempted to think, or we might have misread the scriptures and think that actually circumcision somehow contributed to his salvation. So those two things are separated by Moses and actually separated in time by several years so that there might not be any doubt at all that he is the father, as Paul teaches. You see, Paul knows how to read Moses and Genesis correctly. He reads the gaps in Genesis clearly. He understands the historical sequence so that he can say he was circumcised later, but justified earlier 
so that he might be the father of the circumcised who follow in the footsteps of Abram's faith, but also then of the Gentiles who have not been circumcised. Do you see that? See how Paul works this out and reads it right? So I guess we're called to uh, read it right and work it out and be clear that good works have no part in granting us a safe status before God. We're justified freely and sovereignly apart from anything we could ever do. And even our faith is a gift which is an instrument or tool by which we just reach up and receive God's mercy. It's, it's not of us, it's not from us, though we must exercise it. It's all of God's grace. And just in case Abraham has any doubt at all that God can work the promise out, and this is probably a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, though it's not stressed at this point, but look how Moses describes the Lord and how he reveals himself to the patriarch. Look at it. It's really important. In verse 1, I am El Shaddai. Now, that's the first time that has appeared in the whole of scriptures and scholars aren't entirely agreed as to the meaning of Shaddai, but probably it means the all-sufficient one. So the Greek translation, uh, the Lord Almighty, is quite good. God is the all-powerful sufficiency who will work his promise out and bring his purpose to pass. It can't fail because it's the word of El Shaddai. Maybe you're wondering about the working out of God's promise in your own life. How he's going to bring it to pass. Things you're praying for, things you're asking for according to his will, of course. We can't pray contrary to his will and expect an answer, but how is he going to do it? Does he have the power? Remember, he comes to us as El Shaddai. He has power, he has sovereignty, he has grace. He will direct your steps. He will deepen your faith. He will sanctify your life. He will lead you on and bring you home to glory. He is the Almighty One and He will do it. And what an encouragement that is because there's times when we just feel we are so weak. I cannot do it. Well, the good news is he can. He will. And he does. As El Shaddai. Oh, this problem is too great for me. But God is more than a match for it. He's the all-sufficient one. Surely it's true then, and it's interesting, isn't it, how 
again and again the same promises are repeated and expanded and enlarged and unpacked and unfolded and expounded as time goes on to the patriarch. And one reason I think for this is that we can never muse enough or spend enough time thinking about all the precious promises of God that come to us. It's good for our hearts to stand on the promises of God. Standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Saviour. I'm told, or I was told by the late Reverend George McEwen, who passed in glory recently, also uh, the brother-in-law of Professor Edward Donnelly who passed into glory on yesterday morning. Uh, uh, George McEwen told me about a promise box they had. So the parents made a little wooden or cardboard box with a little slat and they popped in on little pieces of paper, beautifully handwritten, no doubt, because George was very meticulous and precise, into the box. And then each day at family worship, they would take out one of the promises and read it. The children would read it, the adults would read it, and they would pray through it and take it to heart. That's one way of fixing our heart on all that God has pledged and sworn to us. I'm not saying you should get a promise box, but hey, why not? Because these promises repeated again and again to the eyes of the soul and laid bare before them as we view the panorama and the the tourist spots of scripture uh, like a sunset or a snow-capped peak warm our heart and expand the soul and fill us with confidence and joy in the power of the all-sufficient grace of God God gives us seals and circumcision is a seal of all these promises of salvation to inscribe them on our heart like an engraver might inscribe on stone what God has pledged to do and to be to us and for us. And it's in this confidence he's told to walk before me. He's God commanding him to live a lifestyle of of constant fellowship, walking before God and be blameless, which isn't a statement of sinless perfectionism, but it means an integrated wholeness, a public freedom from reproach. You see, that's what God calls us to as he seals these gracious promises. So that's the seal. Use readings, psalms, sermons to impress the promises of God upon your hearts. What then do they seal? Secondly, 
they uh, they seen a, a, a sign. Verse 9. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, circumcision was not unique to the people of God or the family of Abraham. It wasn't. The uncircumcision of the Philistines was a cultural exception. People were surprised that the Philistines weren't circumcised because the rest of the tribes in that place seemed to have taken circumcision upon them, at least some, some, some of the near neighbours of Israel. Uh, the other nations in the region used this cut of flesh in the male member for Reasons perhaps of fertility, for hygiene, and even for cultic practice or liturgy in worship. But it was really a, a, a flesh mark and nothing else. But here, new, fresh, vital meaning is breathed into the old rite and sign of circumcision. Because all the benefits and blessings of salvation in the covenant of grace were being sealed and signaled to believers by the sign of circumcision. So just as our former pastor in Belfast, Dr. Roger Crooks, who wrote a book on baptism, salvation, sign and seal, so circumcision in the Old Testament period was in a slightly more restricted sense the sign and seal of salvation. It spoke of all the good things of God's saving grace towards his people. I wonder is that how you thought of circumcision before today? Well if it's not, that's great. We're learning a little more. What was it a sign of? Well, it was a sign of justification. A right stance before God. Paul actually says, I think it's in Galatians, it was a seal of the righteousness which Abram had through faith. So it's a sign of justification. It's a gospel sign. Nothing less. But much more also. It's a sign of regeneration, new life, or new birth. Nicodemus had the sign in his skin, but at that point in John 3, not the reality he ought to have had. And you'll see, you see, this is, but when say right to be performed, verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Well, eight days, I guess, could have just been a period so that the male child born survived the first week. So it was time, the earliest time possible to perform the right. But probably 
It's linked to the fact that in Scripture, eight is the number of new week, fresh start, recreation. The days of creation, first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, day number six, and the Sabbath on the seventh day, start the new week on day eight. The first day of the new week which is when Christ rose from the dead. You see, the book of Revelations, a, a, a book of seven sevens, and then we come to chapters 21 and 22, with his, which is the eighth vision of recreation and heaven. And so, almost certainly, I think, this is significant at this point, it's a sign not only of justification, but the new life of regeneration. So it's a sign we stand right, we have new life. It's a sign of sanctification. What was being done? Flesh was being removed surgically and cut off from the male member. The flesh was put out. There was a right stance, there was new life, there was no flesh. It was cut off. So we're to put aside dead works and put on new life. There was justification, regeneration, sanctification, purification. Sin symbolically was forgiven. And there was devotion. You see, what we see in Deuteronomy, that passage we read, the people were to put off the flesh. So, for what reason? So they might love the Lord, your God, with all your soul, with all your heart, and with all your mind. With everything. It was a sign of deep commitment to God who was his God and would be God to him. Commitment. Devotion. Justification, regeneration, sanctification, purification, devotion, the whole heart of incorporation into God. It'll not be until the New Testament that we grasp that this incorporation involves union with the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is becoming part of the people of God, incorporation. Well, one thing I've noticed in the US, a slight difference from the UK, we have lots of limited companies, but you have incorporations, Inc. Dot. Well, this is ink dot incorporation into the people of God, into the covenant of God. And there's also then a warning of excommunication because those who do not keep the covenant and perform this rite of circumcision in the Old Testament period will be cut off. He is broken, it says, my covenant, verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my 
covenant. We've been thinking in recent weeks, maybe you haven't realised in our memory verse passage, of why we're saved and what it means to be God's covenant people. You've been doing it, haven't you, in your memory verse. I wonder has that struck your heart? What does it say? In Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Lord, or hear, O Israel, the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down at all times and uh, moments in daily life. The word of God, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. Symbolically, your actions are to be governed by the word of God. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes or phylacteries, little boxes with the memory verses to set the word of God before your gaze at all times and direct your mind and guard it from sin. You see, this is how they're going to live. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates and Isn't it a shame for the people of God that the ones who write scriptures on their doorposts today in Bergen County are ones who are the concision, not the circumcision of Christ. I'm not saying we should do it literally but directed and governed by the word of God. Every action and every thought and every word and every deed. There's only one who did that perfectly, the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is our commitment to our covenant God. This is our response to all these promises. Removal of the flesh. And walking in obedient faith. The seal and the sign. So how is this going to be realised? Well it's going to come isn't it through thirdly the son. Verse 15. And God said to Abram as for Sarai your wife you shall not call her her name Sarai. But Sarah shall be her name means princess. I will bless her and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old and Sarah too? And Abram said to God, verse 18, Oh, that Ishmael might be the one. Ishmael is bypassed which disappoints his parents and probably the lad himself who was now 13 who thought he had the inheritance coming to him 
But no, though he would be blessed and form this para-nation or anti-nation of 12 princes and 12 tribes, he's going to be bypassed in God's sovereign purpose. Hagar, the slave girl, will later be moved aside. And it's the son and the birth of his true wife, Sarah, who to this point had been barren and infertile, that through miraculous, stupendous, supernatural birth will have her barrenness removed. And in the most unlikely turn of events, she receives a new name, Princess, who will become strategic and integral and central and key to the working out of the promises of God. What a role this lady had and so late in her life. The promise of a son to be conceived in her womb now makes her the central matriarchal figure in this promise. What about the laugh? Well, if you were a hundred and your wife was in in her nineties and you were told that this time next year you would have a son, I think you should. At very least, there, it's, it seems humorous. It seems almost too good. To, it's not expressing doubt in God's word. We know that Abram didn't uh, doubt the promise of God. Uh, but it's, uh, it's almost disbelief. This <laughs> just seems ludicrous. He was wide-eyed. He was incredulous. Never in all his wildest dreams did he think that salvation would come through the birth of a double centurion's son. With a combined age of over, well, approximately 200. So if, if saving faith zooms in here on the natural freeborn son who was born by supernatural power and promise according to God's word, we can understand how then we have to have a greater focus on the promise of the divine son born by the spirit who overshadowed the womb of the virgin Mary. See, Isaac was enabled to inherit the promises of God and be delivered from his sins. But now the Lord Jesus Christ has inherited the promises for us and delivered salvation, signed and sealed to us. And if we don't have our hope in him, we cannot inherit the promises. But if we have our faith zoomed in on Christ, and increasingly so, then the hope of salvation becomes real, dear, and precious to us. And as the gospel makes clear in the New Testament, he is the one who was cut off and excommunicated, bearing the curse of the covenant for us, who had also been circumcised on the eighth day to fulfill the legal ritual of the law, 
salvations, Simon said that he might take the flint to our hearts and circumcise us, male and female. See, it's by Christ's action and his gracious power, his all-sufficiency, that we're strengthened and enabled and trained and taught to experience the reality of what it is to love God increasingly with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. You see, if you look online for tips on how to live a godly, holy, sanctified life, you'll find all kinds of ideas but here's the reality. Where is faith to be focused? For the devoted life, the sanctified life, the godly discipleship life of faith, but on Christ. I can't say that my pulpit has been the best pulpit. I wish it was. Uh, but I can't say the best pulpits I've experienced are pulpits that focus on Christ, that lay bare his person, God and man, his offices as prophet, priest, and king, his obedience, kindnesses, love, his gentleness, his firmness, his wisdom, his grace, his speech, his Sacrifice, his love of God's law, his filling with the Spirit, and his work, his giving of himself in love for us to death on a cross. His exaltation, isn't that a wonderful thought? And his coming again in power as judge, his ruling and governing of the universe for the sake of the church and individual Christians in that church. The God who is the agent of creator, who is the one who sustains all things in providence. And the God, the Son, who redeems. And is the great sympathetic high priest of his people. If you have a pulpit like that, you'll not have a problem with devotion if you heed what's been taught. And you apply it. By God's grace. Because he, he, he's a circumciser. And finally then. The scope. The scope. We have seen the seal. And the sign. We have seen the sun. And finally and lastly. The scope. Well it appears that the covenant. Is not limited to mere a DNA and genetics of natural birth. Uh, there certainly is a place for the natural born descendants, uh, but also for adopted sons, hired hands, and servant slaves and their children in the covenant of grace who are all under the roof of this man of covenant faith and under his charge and authority. 
I think the New Testament's probably the place to work that out, what it means. But that's what we're seeing here. The covenant is broader than generally is conceded. Uh, the only restrictions here are those of faith, at least professed faith or agreed faith, and gender or sex. Males are circumcised and females are uncircumcised. Why is that? Does that mean that the good lady folks were somehow excluded from the covenant of grace? Surely not. We only have to see that it's the hope focused on the son through the woman. Without Sarah, there is no hope. You see that? How can we possibly think that in the Old Testament period, women had no place in the covenant of grace? Maybe this is part of what Paul means that women will be saved through childbearing. Maybe. If they continue in faith, it's the seed line hope directed to Christ. And also then, women were included, of course, under their father or husband, the family representative head, who was the circumcised male. Those married ladies who saw the circumcision of their husbands could never forget the importance of circumcision. Of course they were part and parcel of the covenant faith. There may be non-active participants, but they are the sine qua non, without which not, of this covenant Old Testament rite. And the way the women declared their faith was their willingness to come under the authority of the home and then to give themselves to raise up a seed, physical and spiritual. Chief part being spiritual. To, to raise up a seed in the hope of one seed, Jesus Christ. And maleness is stressed to emphasise faith in the coming Christ. Now, of course, the scope is even wider and broader. Uh, now that Christ has fulfilled this expectation of procreation of the heir of salvation, who is Christ, there's no longer a need to tie the covenant sign to the procreative act in the male member. And if every male took the sign on the eighth day when the promise was so comparatively dim, surely our conscience does not need a push to, with joy and willingness, take the covenant sign upon ourselves, male and female. There may be some listening today or who will listen to this or maybe some here I don't know all of you uh, who have not yet been baptized 
And let me just urge you that I think in light of all God's grace, no consideration overrides this. If you belong to Christ, take the sign of saving grace and don't delay. When it finished talking with him, God went up from Abram. Then Abram took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abram's house, and he circumcised the flesh on their foreskins that very day as God has said to him. You see, it's an exercise of faith. It's doing what God wants and believing it's important. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Can you see them one by one lining up? I think I would have needed a bit of a persuasion and push myself. Painful. Costly. And as a uh, ritual circumcision took place one after another, this would have been hundreds of men by this time. Maybe thousands. All express their dedication to God and their commitment to covenant in this rite. Do we not have brighter eternal promises of salvation, blessing and a land of glory that shines with a brightness that far exceeds the land Signified in the covenant of circumcision. Do we not have a sign which speaks more clearly of new birth by water and spirit, of justification through faith, the sanctification of removal of the flesh and of union with Christ by covenant? We do. We have baptism. And is the Son in whom we place all our hope not more real and more certain? He has come, he's taken our flesh, that in the likeness of sinful flesh, without any sin, he might do away with our flesh and circumcise us. We're called to focus all our hope not on Isaac, laughter, but on him, the Lord, the incarnate word Um, just as the patriarch couldn't see him with his eyes yet because he wasn't born we look in faith into heaven and see him at God's right hand and is the promise not reaching out beyond the family of Abraham and the state of Israel and Palestine to Every land and every climate where all believers and their children have been rescued and redeemed by the blood of Christ. As Peter told the crowds at Pentecost, the promise is for you and your children and your children's children and to all who are far off and and whom the Lord will call. And if we have believed, then we should be baptised. In in conclusion then, we have seen the seal and the sign and the sun and the scope. Let me ask you, are you focusing each day on the promises of God? 
read, sing, pray, teach, hear the word of God? Do you look to your baptism to remind you you've been washed to grow in grace, to struggle with sin and to put on Christ? Repent and realize all you have in the covenant of grace and your identification with Christ, that God is your God. And is all your hope on the Son of God, born of the Spirit at the time God planned to die in your place and rise to defeat death on your behalf. Believe that Jesus Christ has circumcised your heart that you might love God with all your strength. There's nothing to hinder us from coming and taking the sign if we have been washed. May God bless this word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is rich and deep, uh, full of grace and kindness, uh, full of challenge and warning. We pray, O oh Lord, you would encourage us to keep our faith focused on Christ, who has, by his death, removed our flesh and renewed us in your likeness. Bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing praise, then, is found in Psalm 101b. Psalm 101b.